Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Frank Rodman, founding partner of QED Investors, a fund that invests in early-stage, disruptive financial services companies around the world. Frank focuses on financial services and financial technology companies that are credit-oriented or have data analytics foundations at their core, and his portfolio includes some of the fintech rock stars of our generation, including LendUp, Credit Karma, Avant, SoFi, and many more. We talked about his experience at Capital One as one of the first employees to senior executive, the evolution of QED in the fintech landscape in the US, Latin America, and around the world, his approach to evaluating early stage fintech startups, and the outlook on the road ahead for the fintech industry. I'd also like to add that Frank is probably the most respected fintech voice on Twitter and has become famous for sharing some of the most thoughtful and in-depth Twitter threads. In case you're not following him, I recommend you check him out. His username is Fintech Junkie. And now, without further ado, join me in a fantastic conversation with Frank Rodman, the Fintech Junkie. Frank, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton Fintech podcast. A thrill to have you here for a second time. I can really think of only three people that we've had twice on the show. So very, very excited to have you back. And maybe we can get started by hearing a bit about your background. Well, appreciate it. Uh, most people don't invite me back a second time, you know, after hearing me once. So uh, there's a appreciation here and happy to help however I can. By way of background, I've been in and around uh, financial service, fintech, and banking for 27 years now. You know, the origin story, it started with me graduating from the University of Virginia in 1993 with undergraduate and graduate degrees, mostly in engineering and artificial intelligence. And when I left college, I went directly to a small bank that very few people had ever heard of called Signet Bank. And, you know, I really went there because of the people that I had met and the vision that they had for building something big. And if you fast forward a bit, Signet Bank ended up spinning off a division that eventually became Capital One. So a lot of my formative years in banking and fintech was really helping to build Capital One from the ground up. So we had a very talented team. We were doing some very novel things in the world of credit cards and eventually grew up to become a full service bank. Um, and I played a variety of roles. Uh, within Capital One that ranged from building businesses from scratch that the company needed to fixing some of the big businesses when they were broken. I also was the first chief credit officer of the company before there even was an official chief credit officer and helped really work with, again, a talented team on figuring out a new way of underwriting and a new way of thinking about risk in the context of lending. So a lot of really interesting things on that watch. You know, and then eventually the company became quite large. I had done quite a few different things and ended up leaving in 2005 to go build a student lending company. Did that for a few years and then ended up joining back up with one of the co-founders of Capital One, Nigel Morris. And we ended up forming what 
is today QED Investors. So we started investing our own money because we had absolutely no idea if we were good at being investors. Uh, we had a fairly good idea that we had good operating backgrounds and we were hopeful that the skills that we had would be helpful to young businesses, you know, trying to figure out how to navigate the world of banking and fintech. And, you know, after a handful of years, where it was Nigel, myself, and one other ex-Capital One person named Caribou Honig, we determined that the opportunity was bigger than just the three of us. And we ended up hiring more people. The opportunity kept getting bigger. We hired more people. And you can fast forward to today, we've actually raised outside capital because the opportunity was bigger than just our own pockets could take care of. And we now have a team of more than a dozen investment professionals investing in the US, the UK, Latin America, and hopefully soon to be exploring some investments in Southeast Asia. So that's really the story. Definitely QD has become synonymous for FinTech VC. So uh, excited to delve into a lot of this topics. But uh, Frank, can we go back to Capital One? I mean, it's no secret. We've had several guests on this show who credit Capital One as an inspiration. And these are no insignificant guests. These are unicorn founders, they're industry leaders, right? Why do you think Capital One and its culture have inspired a generation of builders, I say? Well, if anything, Capital One was kind of an embodiment of the scientific method applied to financial services. And for a lot of people who think very rationally and like to break down problems into pieces, it worked really well. It was about reporting to the truth, not reporting to your ideas or pet projects. It was about test and learn and the scientific methodology. It was about the market basically giving us the answer instead of us giving the market the answer. And, you know, it was about just a pure discipline about knowing what you know and then learning what you don't know. So for so many people, it just seemed to resonate because you could break down the problems and you could build them back up. And whether you were a junior person or a senior person, at the end of the day, the answer was in the market. I think the culture was one of, as I call it, reporting to the truth. And for a lot of people, that's just very different than what they find at other companies. Yeah. And when you think of the landscape today, is there a company that kind of reminds you of Capital One? Is there a Capital One of today? Or, or is it just a different environment where that practice has been adopted by several companies? Yeah, I think it is a different era. Back in the very early days, and this dates me, Signet Bank and then Capital One was busy putting in some of the first data warehouses. And it was about actually saying the data is important because we're going to use it to analyze results. And it was a very odd thing for a bank to be investing in technology to store data. So you can imagine how if we fast forward to today, they would almost laugh at the idea of not storing data. Back then, storing data was expensive and it was brand new. You know, we were working with Oracle and working on putting in the newest and best technology. Uh, in some ways, helping them figure out what it would look like for institutions in the banking industry. I mean, it's just a very, very different environment where storing data and analyzing data today is kind of the way everything is done. I think what Capital One did well and continues to do well is the discipline around the data and the analysis and the learning agendas and making sure that you know the truth. Understood. So let's talk about the early days of QED. Did you really set out to invest 
only in fintech or in the financial sector from day one? Or has your strategy really evolved over time? It's a good question. And we have a strange wandering answer to it. And I say that because Nigel and myself were still non-competed out of certain financial service investments because of our relationship with Capital One. Even though it had been a number of years since we left, we were on long non-competes. And as a result of that, it meant that a lot of what we might want to invest in was off limits. It also didn't help that we really started QED. We started envisioning it in 2007, but started really investing in early 2008, which wasn't exactly the perfect time for looking for novel new financial service businesses, fintech businesses coming up out of the ground. Financial crisis was kind of on people's minds. And the last thing they wanted to do was back something brand new in the space. So the combination of factors led us to actually invest in some non-fintech companies for the first you know, year or two of our existence. We actually spent a fair bit of time looking into ad tech and uh, made a handful of investments in ad tech. But once the financial crisis early days were behind and startups were you know, really starting to come up out of the woodwork, our non-compete rolled off and then we went back to the basics, which is what we knew how to do, financial services, banking, fintech. Yeah, I see. So I guess it's been about a dozen years, uh, over a decade, uh, that you've been looking at the industry as an investor. Also, the industry has moved a lot uh, during this time, right? What have been some of the biggest surprises for you? Are there any particular fintech verticals that have surprised you and, and how, or have evolved in, in a way that you would not have expected? It has been 12 years, 13 years, somewhere in that ballpark. And, you know, over this period of time, say the themes that QED has been interested in, you know, changes as new things are figured out in the ecosystem. Very early on, one of the big innovations in the space was the fragmentation of the value chain. And we saw brand new companies popping up out of the woodwork like Prosper and Lending Club, where you could separate the balance sheet from the origination machine. And, you know, that might seem simple and it might seem kind of tried and true today, but that was a brand new concept. You know, we saw the the V1.0 companies really ascend and ascend very quickly and show what modern UX, UI, APIs could do to an origination process that would delight customers and reduce friction and then ultimately sell off the production to someone who is interested in the cash flow. You know, models like that, I think, are very interesting. But one of the observations, not just in fintech, but in business in general, is typically the second wave of innovation has a chance of being more interesting and more durable than the first wave because you can stare at what worked and didn't work for the first wave. And if the first wave didn't get it precisely right, there's a chance for the second wave to build better business models, you know, that build on what was good and correct for what was bad. So we've seen a couple of these big mega themes kind of go through waves. I think investing is about to go through a V2.0 wave, you know, and there are some modern, interesting companies coming up like Common Stock, which we're an investor in public, which I think are really trying to democratize education and information in trading, not just collapsing the cost of trades to zero. I think the ascendancy of neobanks and vertical banks is really interesting. Doing less actually allows you to do better. 
and focusing on a specific vertical and offering the six to eight banking products that they're really looking for uh, allows you to actually be world-class in those six to eight products versus a typical bank, which offers a few hundred products to customers, small businesses, and commercial clients. So the ability to focus is enabling some of these neobanks and vertical banks to emerge. And I, I wrote about this in something called the Copernican Revolution in Banking, which you could find either at QED's website or on my blog at fintechjunkie.com. You know, but talking about the ascendancy of doing less uh, allows you to actually do better. So I think it's really interesting right now, the middleware layer that's emerging that's connecting old tech to new tech. It's kind of a truism that ripping out legacy old tech that is pervasive in your organization is a high-risk, low-reward project. can't tell you how many big projects I've watched in my career where the project ended up being over-budgeted by tens of millions of dollars and ended up under-delivering the functionality, and it would take years. So in some ways, by the time you rip and replace, you're almost ready to rip and replace again. And I think there's a new way of doing things today in an emerging class of companies that we're calling a middleware layer that connects modern front ends the UX and the UI, using phones and devices that uh, consumers and small business owners really want to use, creating user experiences that work magically and seamlessly with as little friction as possible, and connecting them to old legacy tech that works from a transaction standpoint, but connecting it with a middleware layer that is some ways a universal translator. And we're seeing a lot of companies emerge in this space for good reason because it's finally enabling creativity you know, to emerge without the limitation of the back-end system. We're seeing a lot of interesting things happening in embedded payments. That's talked about quite a bit. We're actually very interested in a new theme, which is really allowing consumers to access earned, earned payroll in, in advance of their actual payday. So wage advance is a theme that we've now invested in five businesses globally, because we believe that it really is a technology solution that you can layer on top of payroll, connect directly into time and attendance and payroll systems, and with zero risk, basically advance people wages that they've earned. So again, there's so many things that are interesting going on in the space. Almost every rock that you pick up, there's something interesting underneath it. I guess uh, you've seen... You mentioned uh, FinTech 1.0, right? And I guess that also brings a founder 1.0, right? Has the type of founder 10 years ago, has it evolved to today? How are you observing talent pool evolve specifically for FinTech? What are the key differences between founders today versus several years ago? Success begets success. And when people can stare at other people taking risks and succeeding, it makes it easier for them to imagine success. So I don't think it's as scary today to be part of a startup or to start something new than it was a decade ago. And you know, while that may seem very strange to people early in their careers, because the careers of choice now are in startups versus in, let's say, consulting, which it would have been 20 years ago, or in banking 20 years ago. So I do think the success is giving founders uh, or people uh, that are interested in building something from the ground up more permission to actually do it and feel like they have a chance of success. 
you know, you're also seeing talented, talented individuals that have grown up within the next generation of fintech start to think about what problem they want to solve. And if you've worked for a startup that's been able to grow, you know, you're tackling really interesting problems. It becomes almost a primer in how an industry works. You know, you become a knowledge expert and you've also grown up in a startup culture that knows how to move fast, knows how to ship code and do the things that you need to. So I'm really excited that founders are now popping out of places like Square and PayPal, Visa. I mean, some of the the bigger companies are starting to spin off people who really want to tackle big problems. And again, you talk about the PayPal mafia. In some ways, PayPal gave permission for a breed of founders to go start new things. I think with other big successful companies in fintech, they're going to spin off the next generation of entrepreneurs. I also know that you have a big international listenership at this point as well. And I do think that success in one country gives permission for founders to do interesting things in other countries because they can stare at models that are working and then try to figure out what in that model will work in their country. Some things will and some things won't be able to and will need to be adapted. But we're seeing a breed of unbelievably talented founders in Latin America right now. We have more than two dozen investments in the Latin American countries, mostly Mexico and Brazil, but we do have a few in other countries. And a lot of the founders have been students either in the United States or students of businesses in the United States. Then when they they look in their own country, they see very similar problems, but maybe 10 years behind the U.S with maybe even more profound pain points and some gigantic businesses can be built as a result, you know, like Newbank, which we're a, a big investor in. And I'm happy to say that we've had uh, several of those founders on, on the show. Let's stay on, the, on that topic, on the international investing front. You know, not a lot of U.S.-based VCs take that leap, take the leap of going abroad and, and finding interesting companies and founders outside of the U.S. borders. Was it the fact that you saw that there's talent, there's a market, and you know that the right ingredients were there, or was there more to your reasoning behind deciding to invest abroad? I wish I could say that we were able to uh, forecast the future perfectly and we got it right, but that's the farthest thing from the truth. We actually were ignorant <laughs> and in some ways lucky. You know, it really, our investments in Latin America started with an investment in a founder who we knew quite well, which is the opposite of studying a market. You know, David Velez, who was the, the founder and CEO of Newbank, was someone that we knew from his time at General Atlantic. I spent a lot of time with the General Atlantic team in the early days of QED, flying around South and Central America, looking at interesting financial service and banking businesses. Uh, got to know him quite well. And it was really interesting because he kept talking about how Brazil really needed an alternative to the credit card products that were being offered by the traditional bank. He was talking about it 10 years ago. He eventually left General Atlantic uh, to get his MBA at Stanford and then graduating from Stanford, ended up at Sequoia. And he kept talking about this idea about, you know, at some point, someone's going to build a credit card business in Brazil that's going to take off because of the profound need, you know, in the market. And it ends up that uh, Sequoia said, well, if you keep talking about this, why don't you just go do it? And backed him and QED backed him. um, And he 
he ended up going off and putting the plan together and building what eventually, you know, is now Nubank. But it was really about backing a credit card idea, which is something that we know probably better than anything else in our repertoire, having helped build Capital One with a founder who we knew and got to know over a 10-year period. So it was more about the founder than about Latin America. But once you make one investment, a second one comes and a third one comes and you start to see a pattern and you have to make a decision about whether it's something that you want to put the time and energy into. And we decided we were going to. So we have a team that's dedicated to nothing but Latin America at this point. And that's how we have so many investments that are doing well. I mean, we're scouring the entire region for the best financial service investments. And I think we're finding them. That's incredible. And yeah, I'm also very bullish on fintech in, in Latin America. Yeah, I mean, it goes to show you that one good investment or one strong entrepreneur can open a lot of doors for the region. So it's uh, it's incredible to hear how, you know, you knowing David has led to you know, a couple dozen of investments. So very glad to hear that. Talk a bit about your, uh, your Twitter presence, because you're actually quite active on Twitter. And, and I think people love what you post because you actually, you're pretty open about sharing knowledge, posting multiple threads where you go on some deep dives. Why do you enjoy this process? Interesting. I do like writing because in some ways it helps me crystallize ideas. And typically when I'm writing about something, it's because it's an idea that's come up multiple times with multiple founders or in multiple situations. And when you start to find that you're giving, I won't call it generic advice, I think it's very targeted advice, but advice that you can put frameworks around that seem to resonate with, you know, either founders or resonate in describing what's happening. The chances are that the few people that you shared it with aren't the only ones that would be interested in. So it's not that difficult to actually take ideas in one's head and put it down on paper. It's just a matter of time. And, you know, I used to write when I was on planes, and you can imagine how that's changed this year. But it was a perfect time. You know, I would fly out from the East Coast to the West Coast every three weeks or so, and it gave me some uninterrupted time to think about what are the common themes, you know, what are some common conversations that I've been having recently. And I would put it down on paper. And the uh, interesting observation, though, is the shorter the form, the more bite-sized the insights, the more they got shared. And maybe it's an attention issue. Maybe it's just a, a format issue for the modern reader. But, you know, I write thought pieces every couple of years, and each one takes me a very long time to write. And those thought pieces are either big presentations or really white papers. And there are a couple of them that have done quite well, and we talk about them all the time, and founders seem to resonate with them. But the blog posts end up getting as much or more attention than the thought pieces. And what's funny is I took to Twitter recently because it was a substitute for staying in touch with the people that I can't see anymore. It may sound funny, but you know, Twitter actually is a true social form of media where you can share in real time and chat in real time and some real conversations going that I found I was missing. And connecting with people and sharing ideas through Twitter, I'm finding is getting 10 to 20 times the engagement of blog posts. So it's not even a little bit more. So I've been experimenting with the format. It seems to be resonating. 
At first, people around me were making fun of me for posting Twitter threads with 30 and 40 subtweets on them. But then I started getting a lot of really good compliments on being able to break down the insights into these bite-sized chunks that resonated with people. And sometimes it's just one, one tweet that people really liked, and other times it's the entire thread. So it's a little bit my way of giving back. It's a lot my way of venting about some of the things that are happening in the ecosystem. But as long as people read it, I'll keep writing it. It's a way of hacking Twitter, right? Because it's a short form, but you post 40 of those. It's actually a blog post and people still read it. So let's explore uh, one that caught my eye, one of your threads. And it's about you know, how do you determine what a company valuation is worth? And you had some criticisms for some of the investors in the industry. Can you talk about this specific topic? It's a very tough one. And it's funny because it really was a thread venting about some of what's happening, some of the observations, what's going on in the industry and how it's evolved. And it's a very complicated topic. You know, when you're dealing with private, illiquid companies that really have a long way to go before they achieve their destiny with high risk attached to them, how do you put a value on that? That's not an easy problem to solve, and there actually isn't just one answer. But if you want to put a framework around it, you basically have the intrinsic value of what's been built. In other words, if someone were to buy the machine that you've created, what is it worth for what it's generating today? And then there's the option value of what that machine or that business can actually build in the future and deliver in the future. So you have both the intrinsic value and the option value. And, you know, when you're early on, all you are is a PowerPoint and an idea. There's no intrinsic value in that. It's not actually producing anything. It's really about the option of investing in the team to build something. And what you're investing in, as I I wrote in one of the threads, is really a bunch of statements put together that you're trying to interpret to understand what possibilities are of the company. You know, you have a problem statement. And every single founder will come to you with a problem statement that says, look, let me tell you about this profound problem that's hurting a lot of people that you might or might not be aware of. And I'm going to tell you how big it is and how profound it is. There's a solution statement where the founder will say, remember that problem I just talked to you about? Well, we have the best solution for it and I can explain why. You have a team statement, you know, which is really about saying, this is the team that you should trust to actually deliver against you know this problem and solution statement. And then you have a financial statement. And the financial statement is saying that if we deliver against what we say we will, this is how the business actually grows, and this is what it grows up to become, and why you should like the financial returns of your investment. So really, you have a problem statement and a solution statement. You have a team statement and a financial statement. And what you're trying to do is determine what's the intrinsic value of what's been built and what's the option value of what it's worth in the future. So really, I think it's an interesting framework to look at businesses because a lot of the VC community is cutting corners. And what they say, and I hear this all the time, is that all that matters is team and TAM because what you think you're investing in today will not be what the business grows up to become. So if you're taking too much time to evaluate that future, you're wasting your time. So invest in a great team that's tackling big TAM and they will figure their way around. 
And by the way, you really shouldn't even care that much about TAM because great teams will figure out how to expand the market. So even though TAM is important, you can count on great teams to make it bigger. And by the way, there's a typical venture dilution world where the venture investors say founders only want 25 to 30% dilution in any round. So here's how much money they're asking for. Therefore, with this dilution, here's what the valuation of the company is. So basically, you've collapsed what I think is a very complex exercise in figuring out what a company is worth to something that I think is full of shortcuts and flaws, where you say, if a founder asks you for $6 million, evaluate if the founding team is any good, and then that $6 million buys you 25% of the company, therefore, the company is worth $18 million pre-$24 million post. And that makes no sense, right? I mean, every single business is different the output of success is different. The risk of failure is different. The team is different. What they can learn for how much money, how quickly is different. And that's really the core of what venture capital is about. So I worry about the shortcuts that are being taken in the venture community to say, let's just plant money you know, with talented founders, not worry so much about what they said they're going to build, but spend all our time evaluating them. And if we evaluate the right team, good things will happen. And it's not that they're wrong. I think that you do have to evaluate the teams. And there's a lot of truth to the fact that the future is probably not going to unfold the way that you put it down on paper up front. But it doesn't mean that exploring how the founder is thinking of the future, understanding how they're thinking of the financial model they're putting together, how they're going to go to market, the solution they have, what research they've done into the problem. It's really a window into how they think. It's a window into how you might be able to help them, what advice you can give, where there will be landmines that they are going to have to avoid that you can help them with. And you need a plan. So you might as well chase a future you think you can bring into existence or you know you think will exist, and then adjust based on market feedback. But ignoring it altogether, I actually find very lazy. It's really interesting. And I'm guessing this environment has made things uh, maybe a little bit more uh, challenging for you, or is it the other way around, or does it help you differentiate from the rest? It's a really good question. There's so many forces at work here where I'm a little bit upset, and I make no bones about it, that I wish that people never discovered fintech and that it were our backyard and our backyard alone. And that's that's a fantasy standard. That's not going to happen because fintech is just too big an opportunity. And I think the generalist funds have now woken up to how big an opportunity it is. And they should, right? There is no reason why the big funds shouldn't be having a significant presence in the fintech space. I just wish it weren't true. And it ends up we have to compete now with not just fintech specialists, but some of the very talented generalist funds that are out there. I have great friends at many of the funds, and they're some of the smartest people that I know. But it, it makes it tough where there are some brand name deep pocketed investors that have resources that can help businesses in very generic ways. You know, generalist funds have generalist advice they can give, and you know, they have centralized teams that can help with things like recruiting, they can help with things like PR. But the difference is when working with a QED, you know, or one of the other talented fintech specialist funds out there, you're getting practitioners that can help you solve actual 
very difficult, specific problems to the business. So for some of our businesses that are in lending, we actually help them write and oversee credit policy. And I can say that it's something that we've done a lot. We can help them avoid the landmines and make sure that the policies are buttoned up. It makes debt funders actually feel better knowing that we're overseeing the company from a risk standpoint. It can help them attract the type of funding that they're looking for because the right checks and balances in place with you know, seasoned executives helping to govern the company. We help with marketing. We help with, you know, cracking the code on, you know, repeatable marketing that leads to the analysis of very complex annuity-oriented products, right? I mean, we know how to do that. We know how to create the NPV models and understand how to understand the margin in businesses, how you can actually assemble the building blocks that are available in the industry to make your business model better. And being a specialist, you can connect the dots. All we do is fintech and fintech adjacent type investment. And it means that we see thousands of businesses in the space and we can see where there are pockets of opportunity and where we can hopefully guide companies away from dead end. So we're hoping, and it seems to be playing out, that in this environment, the best companies are valuing the expertise as much or more than before. But we still have to be competitive in terms of things like price and the term sheet. It's not like they're just going to uh, discount the company massively to get us on board. But, you know, I do think that we offer something that's a bit different than the general. You live and breathe fintech, clearly. <laughs> so I guess before we go, you had talked about uh, earlier in this interview, you talked about the great unbundling, right? Particularly when it comes to new banks. But we've also seen a wave of M&A recently. We're actually seeing the opposite. We're seeing a bit of a rebundling going on. Are you expecting additional M&A to continue and increase? And are you expecting some consolidation in the industry? Good question. Buying is a skill. Make no bones about it. It's, it's not just a transaction. It's a skill. It's a corporate skill. And either companies are good at it or they're bad at it. And if you're bad at M&A, if you're bad at inorganic growth, then you really need to stay away from it because all you do is destroy value. When you're buying a company, it's not just about analyzing it strategically or analyzing it on paper and figuring out what it's worth and coming up with terms that the other party would be more than willing to accept. The real value is unlocked post-acquisition. It's unlocked in either the integration or in leaving the business alone and figuring out how to use it as a distribution arm or take the product that it's created and distribute it through your existing companies. But you really have to be good at the post-integration mess, which it really is when you first acquire a company, and be very good at it. So if you look at some of the big potential buyers, people always ask, why aren't banks buying more things? I think part of it's because they're really not that good at buying. They're not very good at the integration process unless something like slamming two banks together, right? And even then, it's really messy with all the different systems and interconnectability. So banks are okay at doing some cookie cutter things like buying other banks. But when you talk about buying a technology company, it's hard. The natural tendency of a bank or a big organization is to naturalize and domesticate the business to their ways and culture. And sometimes that's the right answer and sometimes it isn't. 
If you do it wrong two years and one day into the acquisition, which is typically the lockout period for people leaving, you know, you usually have some sort of a, an earnout or, or some, I guess, commitment made by the founding team to stick with the acquisition. But two years and one day after the acquisition, people will just start leaving if the acquisition isn't going well. But I think there are some really interesting buyers that are emerging that are good at this. Some of them are startups that are now grown up. PayPal and Square are good examples of that. I think Visa is a good buyer of businesses. So there are a handful of very good buyers. And I think there are a few banks that are pretty acquisitive or at least making motions that they're acquisitive. And time will tell whether they're good at it. And the one thing I'll say, though, is when companies get large, when you start to talk about organic versus inorganic growth, the tendency of a company that's been built mostly organically is to reject acquisitions and inorganic growth, saying it's going to ruin our culture, it's going to be hard, we need to buy big things to make a difference, and that's scary. But what I will say is when a company gets big, the only thing worse than buying revenue is to not buy revenue. You have so many advantages as a bigger organization that getting good at acquiring businesses needs to be a skill. And it opens up new vistas. A lot of times, better to let Darwin do its thing and find the winner in a space and then use the resources you have to buy it and then use your channels to distribute it. That's a better strategy than trying to build it yourself. I actually think that big companies need to learn how to acquire just most of them aren't very good at it. So where does that leave us? I mean, I think you're going to find some M&A activity. Um, but if I were a startup, I would almost build a business counting on staying independent. And if you can't build a healthy business staying independent, then you need to rethink your model. Before we let you go, we always love to ask our guests about some of your hobbies. And now in times of quarantine, we've heard different things. Maybe people have picked up new hobbies. <laughs> Are there uh, any hobbies that you would like to highlight? Well, not traveling means more time for taking care of myself in some ways. So I've taken to the Peloton bike and tread. So trying to work out six days a week, which I find is a great break to actually have my mind focused on nothing but pain. And, and that's actually good in a lot of ways. I do read a lot, but I don't read business books. So I stay away from that. When I'm reading, I actually read science fiction and modern literature, mostly science fiction. I watch movies and probably the strangest hobby that I have. I just turned 50 and I've been collecting comic books since I was seven years old. So I have a collection of somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000, maybe more comic books. And it started off as a hobby and turned into a habit. And I've just never given up. <laughs> Sounds like the portfolio that's most valuable to you is the comic book portfolio. <laughs> no, it's a, a passion that's been decades in the making from when I was a kid. So I do like it. I can't say it's that valuable. I think the QED portfolio is a little bit more valuable than uh, the comic book. <laughs> no, fair enough. Well, Frank, thank you again. Really fascinating stuff. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge and educating the industry. And thanks for joining us for a second time. You're definitely a, a friend of the show. Happy to be here a second time. And if there's anything I can do to any of the listeners, I can be reached on Twitter. I'm pretty active, as you guys know now. Um, or you can reach out to me at QED directly at frank at QEDinvestors.com. 
Outstanding. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 